experience changes the brain. And it's not anything that is mind blowing to say, although it took us a long time as a neuroscientific community to really understand that was true and to understand that it occurs throughout our lives and understand the parameters and the molecular mechanisms that uh, allow that to happen. But if you just start with that premise that experience changes the brain, then to me, it seems that there is an entire largely unexplored domain of potential therapeutic approaches that can be designed and then validated that allow targeted experiences. So again, it's about the brain interaction with the environment experiences, sort of the, the child of that to allow us to improve function. All right. Today's talk was with Dr. Adam Ghazali, head of a neuroscience lab at the University of California, San Francisco. Adam is a dear friend and a truly, truly good human and an amazing Renaissance man, polymath, inventor, creator, and entrepreneur. He has been studying the brain for the last two decades. He has publications in Nature and all the other world-class leading peer-reviewed journals and publications. And he's also the inventor of something called SenseSync, which is literally looks like a space pod. And it's a multi-sensory closed feedback loop AR, VR, time travel pod. Basically, you go in, you put on the goggles, you have olfactory senses, so scent, you have different positions, you, you can shift in, you have wind blowing in your face, you have galvanic skin response for how hot or sweaty or aroused you are, you have heart rate variability, all of these things together, and they're measuring and then changing what you experience in the virtual world. So if it hadn't been quarantine time this spring, Adam was going to be presenting this exact, these exact findings and this cutting edge research on the main stage at TED. Uh, instead, we got to talk. So if you're curious about that kind of work, this, this intersection between medical, pharmacological and technological, Adam is on the true forefront of what happens when we take biometrics or biofeedback, we put that into radical experience design in the service of healing, integration, skill development, and potentially human wholeness. So this is an awesome one for anybody who's looking to explore the crossroads of technology and transformation with a little bit of neuroscience thrown in. Thanks for joining us on Homegrown Humans. Thanks for having me here. Really excited to talk with you today, Jamie. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's awesome to pick up the thread uh, of a conversation that we've been having on and off for several years. Um, but I think that something that you're, you're representing in the overall conversation of, you know, where have we come from, uh, who are we, and, and what do we do now, which is sort of the, the sustained inquiry uh, of this program. Um, you really sit at the intersection. You're sort of a humanitarian scientist. Um, you've been going deeply into the most um, empirical and material realm, literally the anatomy and function of human brains. Um, but you've been doing it with uh, what feels like a deep dedication to human flourishing. How, how do we do this thing better? Um, so let, let's just start with that. Let's just, you know, a, a little bit of how you got to know, how you ended up finding yourself in this discipline, and, and what, are your, what are some of your hopes uh, for the research that you and your team are conducting? Hmm. That's I love that question. It's it's funny. I do do a lot of interviewing, and I knew you would ask me something completely unique that I don't know if anyone's really asked before. And I, I, that question, the reason I'm smiling is because it does strike 
to the thing that's most personal to me is this intersection of science and humanity. Um, even from when I was a kid, like to back it up, like when I was seven years old as a kid in New York City, uh, science was just, uh, you know, immensely exciting to me, really starting with science fiction, but then science. And um, as I moved through my years as high school, I went to a, a science-based high school, Bronx High School of Science, and into undergrad, um, I started realizing that my original love, which was for outer space, the cosmos, uh, maybe partially inspired by uh, Carl Sagan's piece, um, as fascinating as it was to me, wasn't really where I wanted to spend my life. And that inner space and things that uh, really spoke most to what makes us human was much more inspiring. And so my directionality went from out to in and from uh, the cosmos to neuroscience. So uh, throughout my you know career now, fairly long, 30 years in neuroscience since when I started grad, grad school in 1990, so 30 years this year, um, I've really always been trying to unite the two. Um, and I've made multiple decisions over this long period of time when I felt that I might have been sort of going down this spiral of reductionism and maybe losing sight on what I thought was the big picture. And it's interesting because training as a scientist, that is the process, right? We have this very reductionist process where you just keep adding more details. Um, and I always joke that at some point, if you do this long enough, you're the only one in the world that cares about what you just discovered. And, <laughs> and that's, that, that's, that's the business of science um, and how our empirical methodology takes us to ever more details. What I've tried to do um, in a couple of really big events over the last 30 years in my career is to turn that around and take a discovery. And instead of bringing us to more esoteric, detailed questions about it, to say, how does this contribute to doing something bigger and more global? And so, you know, that's like not a detailed answer, but I'd say my constant practice with myself is to reorient and say, are the questions I'm asking, the tools that I'm utilizing, really contributing not just to our understanding of the brain and the mind, but helping people? And it's amazing how far away you can get from that, even if your intentions were very much grounded on that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I see some of the smartest people I know drift from that um, without even realizing and then maybe never returning. And mm -hmm. so that's, you know, that's that's my answer. It's really um, a constant reorientation of are my, is my commitment to scientific discovery making an advancement to what it means to be human, to the quality of our lives. And it's not a trivial thing to connect those, but it is like my, my ultimate personal mission, which is why I was smiling when you asked that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I just came across uh, a quote from Einstein this week, where he said, and I think he was speaking about John Wheeler, you know, his, his colleague at the Manhattan Project on the theories of relativity. And um, he said something to the effect of, you know, all theoreticians are just, are, are tamed mystics. <laughs> and that, that sort of speaks to, uh, that, that just came to mind as, as you were describing that. Um, so, so when we think about that, you know, if you've got kind of, you know, Carl Sagan on one side and Oliver Sacks, you know, on your other shoulder, um, what, 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 are the, what are the great ponderings and wonderings from you as a youngster reading science fiction, thinking about the cosmos, to being in the wet labs, you know, vivisecting rat brains to MRIs and scopes. What, what is the, you know, if there is one, and I, and I imagine there is for you, what is the thread 
that, that connects that, that um, mystic wondering. Yeah, I'd like to believe there was a clear thread. Um, and there are certainly themes even over the last 30 years that I've been consistent with. Um, brain as, as not as uh, isolated modules, but really as a network. That's, that's some, you know, on the neuroscience side, something that's been continuous. The fact that our brain is also not some solid structure that is basically either staying stable or diminishing in its robustness, but plasticity is something for the thir last 30 years I maintained as a constant thread. Uh, I would say that the new parts of my work now in my life are weren't there at the very beginning in, in the 1990s when I started doing research on under the microscope. So I started under the microscope and then as, as you sort of summarize really quickly, moved into human-based cognitive neuroscience. Uh, a lot of what had changed for me as a scientist over you know, 30 years going from what I describe as molecular anatomical neuroscience to cognitive neuroscience to now as I describe myself as a translational neuroscientist uh, where everything is directed not at just understanding but translating into approaches that make our lives better. So I'd say I'm on my third part of my scientific, my neuroscientific career. Uh -huh. I would say a lot of what changed for me, even over the last 20 years, was related to uh, nature photography, which is a, a passion of mine now for has been for 20 years, which really made me think about um, things that I hadn't focused on scientifically as much, but they being in nature and trying to find beauty and um, aesthetic uh, joy from nature experiences and then share them really made me think a lot more about things like attention and perception and empathy and compassion, uh, which were not part of my research, but then changed me as a person and now has actually finally started uniting with my scientific research. So it was sort of this convergence of my life as a scientist, as a New Yorker with no nature exposure, with this newfound love of being in nature and photography and and that aspect and then trying to not necessarily trying as like i need to accomplish this but being cognizant of the convergence of these elements in my thinking and hoping that they would come together in terms of my work which is really just happening now mm -hmm. well it's really happening now because behind you yeah is one exactly. of is one of your own images right <laughs> Do you want you just yeah, to yeah, share two weeks ago? <laughs> yeah. Where, where is that strange geology? Yeah, this is from Bryce Canyon, um, which is, if you haven't been there, any of your listeners, it's so worth a visit. It's really so otherworldly, as you can see. Um, I try. I, I like this image. I've, I've done a couple of photo shoots there. This one, to me, captured the grandeur and the oddity of it, but also felt more intimate which is sort of hard to actually get capture both of those things in my experience. And um, I've been wrapping around the world for a decade now with my wife doing both public speaking and nature photography. And it's been an amazing journey to see the world. But now, as we all know, that's not possible. And uh, it's sort of cool. It's uh, like one of those COVID gifts I like to think about in that my wife and I said, hey, let's uh, let's start exploring the U.S. Uh, and again. You know, for me, it was a return to that. And so we rented an RV, hit the road, spent nine days from De Death Valley, Zion, uh, Bryce and the Grand Canyon. And um, 
this is just a month ago and got right deep, deep into nature. And so this was one of the, the creations from that trip. Mm -hmm. and, and just in your overview of just kind of the arc of your career, I mean, there's several things. One is, is it the, the three stages of your career seem to match uh, a lot of what they talk about in philanthropy, which is the sort of the phases of life of, of uh, learning, earning, and then returning. You know, and sort of like, so if grad school was the obvious learning part, the, the earning was, you know, peer review publications and papers and, and establishing yourself, developing your lab, and the returning is now matches really nicely with what you described as translational neuroscience. You're like, well, hey, there's not, this shouldn't just stay in the yeah. ivory tower. You know, how, how does it, mm -hmm. how does it help? Um, I wonder. Yeah, if, that's that connection. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also wonder if your perspective behind the lens when you also you, you mentioned the idea of the brain and, and really our entire nervous systems as integrated systems and and how you know where one thing that one region may be upregulated another may be downregulated where a certain specific um, anatomical feature may have multiple uses the idea you know things that are adaptive if something gets injured or harmed other things you know fit in or or, or fill that blank the neuroplasticity elements um, and, that, and that's obviously the exact opposite of what you see in blogging headlines on social media, you know, whether it's the God circuit or the Jennifer Aniston neuron or whatever, you know, there's a, there's a very reductionist, quick hit, here's the place, here's the thing, um, kind of mentality to popular neuroscience. My, my curiosity is, is, does your parallel career behind the lens seeing natural systems and whether that's erosion, river systems, estuaries, deltas, whether that's trees and root systems, you, you name it. Um, do, does it ever pop to you that the sort of the, the symmetries uh, and the relationship mm -hmm. between our neural networks and our systems and, and, and the same forms arising all around you in, in your life as a photographer? Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, in so many ways, more than we could cover right now. Um, I think about it all the time. It's it's sort of a, a conversation that I don't have very frequently, but I learned photography through uh, a microscope, uh, 35 millimeter photography, taking photos of, of neurons in the hippocampus as a grad student. That was my first camera, my first actual <laughs> pictures I ever took, which is interesting. And then I wound up extending it in, into nature, and I've constantly, you know, uh, explored this connection between um, nature and photography and science and the brain. Um, there's so many, um, so many things to talk about. Uh, maybe just to respond directly to the connection that you talked about. Um, I've been doing imaging, starting with microscopy and then functional brain imaging, structural brain imaging. It's always been a part, the visual part of neuroscience has always been a part of my scientific focus in, independent of nature photography. And they feel very similar in some ways because they're both an exploration of nature. Um, one side of it, the science side is maybe looking for organizational principles while the nature side is looking for more aesthetic elements but they're not that different frequently, I, I find. The other thing that's similar about science and nature photography, really particularly relevant to what you said, is that they're a natural events in some ways. They're capturing a moment in space and time. It's like freeze frame. It's like this behind me is not wrong, 
but it is a very limited interpretation in space and time, right? There's a dynamic event going on here, a slow one in this case. Um, mm -hmm. Same thing with the brain, right? We take a picture of it, we freeze it, and then we tell a story about that. But that story is inherently limited by the fact that you did put constraints around it in order to share it. And so I think that what you said was was really very core to how I view um, my science and nature photography in that you make these decisions in order to make them digestible, shareable, and hopefully actionable um, on both sides of the coin. But what you really need to constantly appreciate is that these are dynamic, interactive um, processes uh, that are uh, you know, evolving on different spatial and time scales that we're not always able to record and to appreciate. Um, and that's okay, you do the best you can with the tools you have, but not, not allowing yourself to believe that you are seeing the truth, the way it is, is, is a very important practice. And I find some of, the, some of my favorite scientists and colleagues, uh, some of the smartest, often go into this false belief that they have the tool. Like it's single unit recording. That is the way that we learn about the brain, the neurons and, and all, all sorts of biases around the tools and the perspective that you bring when the reality is they're all little glimpses of a much more complicated and as I said, dynamic reality that we're, we're probably incapable of really sampling in its full complexity. Mm -hmm. I said that sounds, you know, suspiciously along the lines of quantum physics and, you know, wave particle or, you know, measurement position velocity, you know, you can, you can squish one thing, but you occlude the other <laughs> and it's, and it's somewhere in the, the, the foamy possibility space, um, rather than any false certainty. Um, now that said, so, so we've got your love, attention and appreciation to aesthetics and patterns, your sense of both the sort of ephemeral, impossible to pin down nature of truth or reality, and then obviously the nature and the workings of the brain and mind. And so far we've discussed them, you know, in, in relatively discrete aspects of your life and your, your love and, and, and endeavors, but you've also bundled those three um, pretty phenomenally in your work with virtual worlds, where you've taken digital representations of the aesthetics. You've connected them to brain feedback to simulate. I mean, I think, I, don't, I forget who said this, but it's the whole great thing of, you know, art is the lie that reveals the truth. So you've been creating these phenomenal, you know, fascinatingly complex virtual lies that reveal some deeper truth. So, so talk to us, talk to us about that. Talk, 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 to, um, talk to your experiences and your projects um, where you've been integrating all of these things. Yeah, so the one thing that we haven't really talked about explicitly, but is core to everything I do, um, both um, across both these two domains and, and others, is the interaction, the complex interaction between the human brain and the world around us, the environment. So mind and environment and this type of interface, which to me is core to what it even means to think about us as humans and what, where do we give that 
that value and purpose and direction uh, is that, you know, our brains evolved to allow us to interact with this place, this environment around us, really for survival at the very beginning, right? Uh, to be able to detect threats and to be able to detect nutrients and to move towards or away from them appropriately is the beginning of what became the brain, even you can find those elements in single cell creatures, right? There, that's sort of what we do to survive and, and integrate with our environment. And so that's something that I think about all the time from both an evolutionary perspective and then the very practical perspective of what does it mean for us to thrive in this world around us? And how can an understanding of the brain and the mind and understanding of the interface between us and the environment help us do it better? So that's sort of like a high level way of thinking about it that I don't often talk about, but it is my uh, sort of ground truth of where I start thinking about a, a more practical problem, like attention, which is something I focus a lot of my work on. But it really starts with the, in, you know, the interaction between the brain and the environment. And it is from that interaction that I feel the more sort of uh, hard to define concepts like mind and consciousness actually emerge. I view those as emergent properties that happen as the brain and the environment interact with one another. And so if you if starting with that basis, then on a more practical perspective, I would look through my lens as a neurologist, because I'm a mm -hmm. clinician, I was trained as a neurologist, and as a person that deeply cares about other people, and mm -hmm. think about what are the things that we suffer from that could be better, um, and that would make our lives, you know, uh, more, more, you know, happy and fulfilled and, and valuable in all sorts of ways. And then when I see, or, you know, as best as I can tell, that there is an area that we are not doing well on maybe ever or maybe right now, then I'll think about how can an understanding of the brain and of how we build interactions with the environment allow us to improve those processes to lead to better lives. Is, is, is this all an elaborate and careful run up to discussing your psychedelic virtual reality space pod? <laughs> I think like on the highest level, I, I would say it is um, maybe like a, a step, one step before we get into the sensory immersion vessel and its intersection with psychedelics, because um, that's, you know, that's probably the most fun thing to talk about. But it is, it does, I feel like we look, we've given it a lot of context here, but maybe one other layer of context before we, we, we go deep, deep, deep is, um, you know, at the very core of what, um, what makes sense to me from what I just described in terms of a practical, actionable thing to do as opposed to something more philosophical is that experience changes the brain. And it's not anything that is mind blowing to say, although it took us a long time as a neuroscientific community to really understand that was true and to understand that it occurs throughout our lives and understand the parameters and the molecular mechanisms that uh, allow that to happen. But if you just start with that premise that experience changes the brain, then to me, it seems that there is an entire largely unexplored domain of potential therapeutic approaches that can be designed and then validated that allow targeted experiences. So again, it's about the brain interaction with the environment experiences, sort of the, the child of that to allow us to improve function. 
And so I didn't just arrive at this, you know, more um, heady but exciting area of psychedelic research and sensory immersion vessels from nowhere. I started really basic over 10 years ago building digital experiences that were delivered on phones and tablets that were challenging the brain in very selective ways. And then through a decade of research, start plotting out how we can create experiences that are personalized through closed loop systems so that they're adaptive to the individual's performance and state and emotions in the moment to lead to these meaningful and hopefully sustainable benefits. And once we establish that foundation, which took like a decade, not that we're done, but we've done a lot of work on that, then to me, the next stage of my journey, you know, looking to the next 10 years is how do we build upon that foundation to lead to much more impactful changes? And that's where deeper sensory immersive experiences and even molecules that have profound influences on, on our sense of self and our perception of the world started to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you've, and this, this goes back to your, you know, your life as a, as a polymath. Uh, and, and not being content in the lab looking th at things through a microscope or even a camera lens, you started creating you know, and exploring and even exploiting new technological developments. So, so let's talk about these other lenses you've been playing with and just even just paint the picture in kind of physical terms. What is SenseSync? Um, how did it come to be and, and what do you hope it can become? Yeah, so for the last decade, my my research lab, which became a center at UCSF Neuroscape, has really been focused in the software domain. And same with the company I created, Achille, to turn these into therapeutics. And we could talk about that uh, more later if you want. And what we've been doing there is figuring out how to design the experiential elements by manipulating the sensory um input that you're getting as well as the reward structures but it was not super sophisticated in terms of the immersive nature of it um, and so that's what we had been doing and we've had great successes with it we've been publishing papers we've got fda clearance recently on one of those so i feel like we hit a lot of really great milestones that were dreams just a decade ago but then uh, i guess a couple of years ago i started realizing that the ultimate vision was being limited not by what we were doing with software, but what, were, what was limited by our hardware that we had, and also algorithms like machine learning, which we could come back to. So I put together a team, we created a company, uh, founded a company called SenseSync, which stands for Sensory Synchronization. And the idea behind SenseSync was to build the most immersive possible sensory experience that we could with any existing technology. So not necessarily to create all the elements, but to curate them, to bring them together, and most importantly, to figure out how to deliver sensory experiences that are synchronized in time. So when you experience the world around you, a, a key component physiologically is known as multi-sensory integration. And what that means is that the signal in your brain that's registering a sensory event is changed by the presence of another sensory event, so it could be auditory visual, that is transformed by them occurring temporally in time, closer in time and in space. And so that, that event of multiple sensory signals happening simultaneously, sensory synchronization, leads to this unity effect that basically defines our entire 
construction of reality. Um, mm -hmm. If you jitter those, everything falls apart. Things become unreal. Um, they can also be manipulated in clever ways, like illusions, like ventriloquism is an example of cleverly manipulating sensory synchronization to trick the brain. And mm -hmm. so I was really motivated to think, can we create a sensory experience where you see, hear, smell, and feel um, events simultaneously? And I decided to focus it on nature for obvious reasons of what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And then have that environment that you are immersed in be shaped and guided in real time by your own physiology. So this closed loop system, which we are developing. And so can we capture all of these really difficult to quantify, but meaningful aspects of what it of what it means to have an experience. What's your stress, your arousal, your awareness, your mood, your attention, mm -hmm. as best we can, and then have the environment that you are now immersed in adapt to that in real time. That's the idea behind sense. And when and when you say closed loop, who's zooming whom? So is it that I feel excited, my heart rate starts pulsing, my uh, skin response shifts or changes, and then sense sync adapts and responds and gives me more of that? Or is it like a horror movie where I'm just walking along and there's a jump scare and, and sense sync actually does something to prompt a nudge or change my physiology? It, it, either of those things are possible. So it's more of a, a platform to create tools and, th and those tools could be designed to accomplish all sorts of goals. They could be things to just relax you, just chill you out like you've never been, or maybe to restore you by moving your thought processes away from areas that you're stuck in, or it could be to transform you. I mean, that's one of my most exciting uh, thought processes is just thinking about how you could create a full shift in perspective, not just through something like a psychedelic, which we could talk about, but through an experience, a non-molecularly initiated experience alone, I believe that's possible as well. So mm -hmm. the, how, it, how uh, an experience is delivered and for what goals are, um, are decisions that are made by whoever is helping build the interface between SenseSync and the person. So it's really a platform um, and also could be a laboratory, like the ultimate single person sensory laboratory as well as a tool of, of creating change. And, and, and just to ground this, just because we're, we're talking in um, sort of somewhat abstract concepts about a really quite embodied thing, right? Which is, which is this really beautiful, oh, yeah. beautifully designed, futuristic, almost sort of egg-shaped container that looks like the baddest ass spaceship meets recumbent bicycle you've ever seen. You have immersive VR goggles, you have olfactory cues, right? So you have scent, you're making mm -hmm. use of that. You have scent. even wind and position and feelings like that. So mm -hmm. you've got tactile mm -hmm. positioning, you've got movement and motion of your body. So you're shifting vestibular sensation as well mm -hmm. in relationship to gravity and the, and the earth. What, what, what else is going on? I know, I know you've got so many, so many markers. And yeah, obvious, obviously auditory stimuli um, and we're experimenting with spatial different types of spatial um, spatial auditory uh, there is not in the current uh, prototype but temperature is another uh, sense that we could control um, and so yeah I think you went through the list so the well, is, isn't your auditory, I mean you spent quite a bit of time on really high quality audio though haven't you yeah oh yeah yeah audio I mean the, the goal is that all of these um, channels, 
that you just described, and there's dozens of them, will be elevated to whatever the state of the art tech technology brings to the table. So this is like a modular, you know, I, I, we put it in a beautiful device, like a beautiful egg as you described it, but we didn't build any of the components, right? The components are meant to be flexibly adapted as some new, you know, audio system comes out that has better <laughs> spatial and vary frequencies across the ears and when we have you know better scent delivery that could be time locked to events we're working with different companies on that we'll just swap them in so that's that's the really cool part is that it is modular and meant to constantly be updated as any of the components uh rise mm -hmm. uh but what's most interesting as a neuroscientist and i could tell you as someone that ex has experienced this which was in hawaii at the four seasons which was actually delivering what i call a deep brain massage uh, uh -huh. up until COVID uh, shut us down um what's most interesting is not just the number of sensory uh, stimuli that we bring into this which i think is fairly unprecedented but mm -hmm. it's really how they mix together it's the synchrony between them and the and the tricks and the you know the perceptions that you could create so for a quick example if you're laying flat and the bed moves you into a position by lifting your head dropping down your legs even if it's very subtle maybe just mm -hmm. then degrees and at the exact same time we visually change your horizon and we put a wind a forward-facing wind on you uh, maybe a low frequency vibration so you feel that sense of motion the perceptual um, conclusion that you reach is that you have now just stood up and moved forward in space um, even completely stood up, but you haven't. And so it gives us this, this wonderful tool to really allow us to build environments that um, that are just not possible to do in uncontrolled ways. And then of course, you know, that's the fun and entertaining aspect of it. But the more interesting thing is what are the potential benefits that could come from having such a such a device. Yeah, and, and, and what do you see? I mean, obviously, the ability to take people out of regular waking consciousness and to move them both, you know, neurophysiologically, their bodies and brains, but also psychologically and emotionally into a different state or, or, or experience. Um, what are some of the areas that that feels, you know, most intriguing, um, most impactful? Where, where do you kind of see the next few years going as far as, as you develop this? Yeah, well, I'd say the first thing is to take a lot of the um, the lessons that we've gained just from the software side of development over the last 10 years mm -hmm. and address the hypothesis, which is just a hypothesis right now, that if you create some of those same closed loop challenge and reward systems that we have been delivering on an iPad, right? So not mm -hmm. the most immersive of tools good, but not that immersive. And just like the tap of a finger, now we can have full body movement, vocalization as feedback tools. So starting with the very basic things that we've created and have shown in multiple papers and now our FDA clearance as an ADHD treatment, we've shown that even this sort of low level experience, you know, being 
fully honest about it. I think that what we've done is important, but nowhere near the depth of immersion that Sync delivers. What is it like to deliver what we think of, I think of as experiential medicine, right? Digitally delivered experiential medicine. What is it like to deliver it with this level of immersion? The hypothesis would be that we could create bigger change, maybe more meaningful change, maybe more sustainable change, maybe help people that have a depth of disability and impairment, like very, very um, intractable PTSD or depression, um, to allow us to have healing that we were unable to accomplish with a phone or a tablet. And so mm -hmm. that's one of my first goals. Are we talking about like an entirely new medical device um, that can offer um, us solutions for things that we have just not gotten very far, things like traumatic brain injury, autism, PTSD, um, you know, Alzheimer's and uh, other dementias. I I'm really, really excited about bringing together what we've done in the software and what we've done in the hardware side. We have not done that yet. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the, to me, the most obvious and the, and not, not that it's easy, but the first pass is to start bringing those worlds together. Um, what, what comes to mind, I mean, yeah. one, one of our buddies is a, is a former, um, well, I mean, he still is an extreme athlete, but he experienced a, a you know, spinal cord injury. Uh, so he's been paraplegic for a decade and he pushed skied to the South Pole. He's done all sorts of things and he's been in you know, a decade long journey of rehabilitation. And as you were just describing in the sensing, that ability to you know, come up 10, 15 degrees, feel like you're standing be in a virtual world, engage in locomotion, engage in, you know, neurokinesthetic programming. Basically, I can do things in this world and I've got the closed loop neurological inputs that actually are tricking me into thinking that I am doing them. Is there a, a pathway towards neurogenerative, you know, and your fascination always with neuroplasticity, is there a pathway towards neurodegenerative rehabilitatory protocols and can we trick ourselves into neuroplasticity even if our mm -hmm. meat suits aren't always complying? Undoubtedly. I mean, we've, we've learned that through many, many, you know, really interesting studies not, and groups, not just my own, the motor system uh, is capable of rewiring under, you know, these virtual type of stimulation conditions. I think that, you know, I, I don't even like to put any constraints on what's possible. I'd rather be convinced that it's not rather than just rule it out. So I'd put things like stroke recovery there, you know, recovery after tumor resection, like the really, you know, hard stuff to fix because it's, you know, not just neurochemical, but structural and neurochemical. And then some of the intractable degenerative diseases from MS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And then, of course, the debilitating, you know, things that we put you know, mm -hmm. sort of arbitrarily some ways in the mental health condition, things like schizophrenia um, and depression. Um, I would I would think that any of those uh, are fair game for a good hypothesis and research studies and careful design of experiences to try to help repair from them and to uh, harness our plasticity in a way that we have never accomplished before. Mm -hmm. So that's the wow. first thing. The first thing is therapeutics. Is this like an entirely new therapeutic modality that mm -hmm. does not exist right now? Um, and that's, that's, that's the first thing that I, I would like to do. Now, and I, I think we might've discussed this at some point briefly, but, um, have you been following the PONS device that cranial nerve tongue stimulation? 
because the, those yeah. are the, we know those guys are doing the phase three trials up in Vancouver. And it, just as you're talking about the neurodegenerative degenerative rehab and the ability to s deeply stimulate the brainstem and to do it in a way that enhances, and they're using it for ALS, they're using it for TBI, they're using it for a number of this exact neck of the woods. And it just feels to mm -hmm. me like it would pair, like you were talking about off the shelf tech <laughs> and all, you know, you're sort of, you're articulating the pattern language but you're basically mm -hmm. device agnostic. And I'm just curious as to whether mm -hmm. that might be complementary, you know, and whether going through the virtual world and going through the sensory synchronization that you're doing, whether mm -hmm. deep stimulation of the brainstem would then sort of amplify or at a minimum support um, some of the other, you know, neurogenerative experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, I think that what we'll do um, with the closed loop system in an immersive vessel, like I described, will have an incredible degree of precision in activating brain networks. We've never activated brain networks selectively other than through experience. I'd love anyone to show me another way in something as complex as a human. We've never done it with a drug. We have not done it with electrical stimulation. But both Me meaning you've never been able to turn on or off a specific defined network and nothing else yes. on purpose as is. Yes, yes. We've done it for, you know, neurotransmitter systems. We've activated some like maybe very simplistic circuits through like motor stimulation, but not like a full network with things as complex as attention, perception, decision making, emotion, never. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the source of a lot of our challenges in medicine right now is that our therapeutics don't have that selectivity. And so we get the, the consequence of lack of selectivity, which is side effects. That's why we have side <laughs> effects is because we always overshoot to get the effects. And then we just get the byproduct of, of lack of selectivity. And so that's why experience creation as medicine is so valuable because of that targeting. But it doesn't mean that that's the be all and end all, because once you create the network targeting through experience in a very high level like we've been talking about, then the opportunity to integrate in a synergistic manner with molecules and electrical stimulation, then it becomes interesting to me because then you don't have to rely on those tools for this selectivity. You could rely on them for other things like the ability you know, to drive a certain deep brain um, you know, brainstem system or a cortical system or use a drug to just change in general a neurotransmitter system without the selectivity. So I'm really interested in how we bring these worlds together. We've started doing a bit of that with uh, electrical brain stimulation. So we have had several papers from Neuroscape over the last couple of years that you could you could put, download those, those PDFs on our website that have looked at both direct current and alternating current stimulation during gameplay, showing that we can accelerate learning curves by stimulating your brain at um, you know with a, a level of stimulation that you don't actually feel or not feel very mm -hmm. much at all. And so I think both cortical deep brain stimulation um, coupled with this could have really amazing effects um, in terms of enhancing the outcomes. And then of course, molecules as well, which is another fascinating conversation. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that's very much kind of up the alley that I'm researching right now and really curious about because that sense of, um, you know, basically trauma relief. How do we do that? How do we do it better, more effectively for more people? And the idea that 
in a lot of respect, you know, it was, it's the E.O. Wilson, you know, famous quote that the Harvard mm -hmm. biologist who said, you know, we have paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. And the idea that we are still, in fact, in fact, our brains are 50,000 years behind the curve of what our opposable thumbs have been able to create as far as our technologies, and we're all experiencing micro-PTSD. So we're just kind of in a state of perpetual fibrillation. And that was actually one of the findings on that POMS device with the cranial nerve stimulation. So rather than wearing headsets and trying to get through thick skulls and that kind of stuff, it's going mm -hmm. straight in, straight to the cranial nerves. And they experienced even, uh, they experienced a global cascade effect. So that even though they were specifically targeting one or two nerves, they were actually getting an overall, what they likened to you know, rebooting a computer. You know, where it gets all glitchy mm -hmm. and janky when it's been with too many windows open too long. It's kind of mm -hmm. how we are these days. And, and the ability to do that mm -hmm. reset and reboot of our nervous systems feels profoundly healing and also sort of gives us a chance to return to homeostatic balance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you just mentioned three different forms. It feels like pulsing of energy through that nervous system, right? From sort of neocortex to spinal column to sort of vagal nerve, you, you name it, all of our deep core systems. It, it seems like it, it all works. I mean, you mentioned AC, DC, there's you know, transcranial magnetic, there's magnetic stimulation, there's a lot of profound work with sound waves. Um, and, and there's even, you know, and, and then on, on a DIY level, there's the sexual arousal network and orgasm, mm -hmm. you know, which has been cultivated in different religious traditions. But um, is there something there that's essentially creating a charge mm -hmm. and then discharging energy and information and impulse mm -hmm. through the nervous system has some stimulating, um, invigorating, buffering, balancing effect? Like, is that the path to accelerating neuroplasticity mm -hmm. I, I mean there is evidence to suggest it is i think we still have a lot of work to do before i would you know totally um be you know a thousand percent in but uh I, i'm really excited about it uh you know i i always like just try to think sort of going back to our early in our conversation that you know no tool and no diagnostic approach is going to be the answer i'm more interested in the integration of multiple tools together which is rarer than it sounds. It sounds like who doesn't do that? But yeah. you don't see it. You know, like look at a scientific paper. It likely has one window or one, you know, intervention. But uh, my bias is always that um, something that could be as profoundly effective as electrical stimulation, regardless of the form or where it's coming in, is going to benefit by being presented while an experience is occurring. That's sort of my bias, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's what gu guides a lot of our research and, and even technology development is that, yeah, you can do those things just like you can also take a drug without a particular experience in mind. But mm -hmm. you're sort of like not really um, taking, you know, capitalizing on this amazing detailed network capacity of the human brain to help target those other tools. That's how mm -hmm. I look at it. Is so it's that, like context. Yeah, Con I mean, context matters, right? It's, it's yes, like context, active release, active matters. release stretching. You know, you could statically stretch yeah. or you could you could engage exactly. a muscle and move that limb 
through a range of motion yeah. and it gets more out of it. Undoubtedly. I mean, context is, is in some ways it's everything, right? Like you can have totally opposite effects with the same compound, like, you know, not to, to veer into this conversation right now, if we don't want to, but it, with psychedelics, for example, you know, I would say that Sure, they're molecularly initiated, but those are experiential treatments in many of the same ways that we've been discussing with technology. And so you can take the same molecule and cause PTSD with a certain context or cure it with a different context, right? That is what the data seems to be suggesting after, you know, 40 years of up and down in this field. And it's, it's you know, it's a, I would say it's a similar thing with electrical stimulation that the, the context establishes the network and the other physiology sort of baseline of where you are now. And then these other, in many ways, blunter tools, but strong tools, then layer on top of that. And it's the interface of the two that I find really fascinating. And there's not much research in that area. Well, and in, in specifically in which area? It, it, either in the area of electrical stimulation being coupled with experience or mm. molecules including and not including psychedelics being coupled with experiences as well. Yeah, although, you know, I'll tell you what, I, uh, Roger Walsh, uh, the uh, similar similar mm -hmm. background to yours, right? MD, PhD, um, yep. law yeah, at UC Davis. Yeah. Um, he gave me a copy of his book, Higher Wisdom, and it is basically the late 50s, early 60s psychedelic research. And, the, you know, UCLA, Manitoba, you know, Hungary, all the places that it was really going off back when, and it was straight up Sandoz research chemicals. So everyone was... There was none of the stigma, so they were balls out. And you know, UCLA was using mm -hmm. it for three-year-olds to twelve-year-olds and schizophrenic children. They were using it for oncology pain relief. Uh, in Manitoba, they were doing all kinds of stuff. And Stan Groff, beginning of his career, I mean, they were hooked up in Hungary doing strobe lights, galvanic skin response, EEG, crazy amounts of music. I mean, I think we still haven't got anywhere near just picking up the thread that they kicked off with. I was blown away with the, the sort of just straight up ballsy inventiveness and, and the yeah. harnessing of technology that is, you know, feels archaic now, but they went for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I met Roger. I haven't caught up with him in a long time, but I did read his book, maybe even on your recommendation. And then I recently had a, a, a nice Zoom call with Stan Groff and talked about mm -hmm. some of his early work. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, inspired by some of that early research, but a lot of it really did not get um, sort of embedded in the scientific literature at the time. A lot, of, not not to diminish it, it was it was some really clever experimentation, but it wasn't really with a lot of the methodology that now we've come to expect. Nor was it always with the intentions of of publishing sort of protocols. A lot of it was learning that was advancing through, you know, apprenticeship and other exchanges. And then of course it got completely yeah. <laughs> an anecdote, which is, which is great. It's just not fully scalable to the level that we need these solutions right now on a global, you know, on a global scale. And so um, I feel like when I talk to even those pioneers, and I'm going to say even more so when I talk to people that have engaged in treatments from indigenous cultures which or uh, underground therapists, people that have really not used a lot of technology but have long experience and deep wisdom in this, they love this concept, you know, even if they haven't, you know, 
seen the vessel or done this type of high level, both state recording and experience creation, they, you know, described to me that this is the essence of what they mean by shamanic practices and practices in the first place like it is the sculpting of the context you know the from the 60s term of set and setting and yeah. and building it's it's what everyone as i as far as i can tell in the field and i'm not in this field i'm entering this field with psychedelics as a research tool sort of believes um and what what i meant and that there's a lot of work to be done is that if you try to find papers um, in the scientific literature um that describe let's take an example the role of olfactory stimulation during a psilocybin treatment uh for any outcome i mean if anyone finds that send me that paper because i i can't find any of that and so there's just like a you know i feel like we're almost like in a meadow right now which is happens very few times in a scientific career that you feel like you've stepped into a meadow that no one's really walked in yet um at least from this sort of prospectively designed empirical study point of view and so i would love to get knowledge from people that have done this uh approached this as practitioners and um turn it into research studies so that we can start really understanding the ingredients of the recipe and the recipe itself that goes into creating the type of contextual envelope during a psychedelic treatment that leads to more personalized experiences and and better outcomes that's where mm -hmm. I, that's where we're as neuroscape entering that domain mm -hmm. beautiful beautiful and and so can I, i'd love to just actually ask you uh, a question because because i'm sure. i've been noodling, noodling sure. on on a thought experiment that you know leap, leaps off from exactly here which is if you create these immersive multi-sensory experiences and if you have the ability to create effectively that deep nervous system reboot you know and, and if you take a look at that there's there's fascinating overlaps with ketamine and its impact on the brain stem nitrous oxide and its impact on the brain stem again orgasm on its impact on the brain stem electrical therapy um, even carbogen which is one of the things that they were using in in uh in that early hung what it was called uh maduna it was one of graf's colleagues um, who was using it to it was high concentration co2 and oxygen he was using it to trigger epileptic seizures and the you know and, and basically it was kind of a a respiratory equivalent to ect therapy electroconvulsive therapy um, and it didn't play out there but just that idea that there is this there are these multiple ways to do it completely con you know congruent with your your modeling that all do that cold reboot and that often that is that is a, a neurophysiological thing it's a benefit you kind of you know again like electroshock you come out calm grounded integrated mm -hmm. but there is this other element which is the interiority of it and that mm -hmm. consistently people report very high bandwidth information, very high salience, very high sense making mm -hmm. in those spaces. And, you know, for me at least, the question, you know, one of the top questions is, is where is the information coming from in those non-ordinary states of consciousness? And the best I can come up with is like four choices. <laughs> And, I, and I, can I, I'd love to run them past you, and then you can tell me where you lay, yeah, sure. where I'm out to lunch. But like, you know, from yeah. most, you know, reductionist materialist or straightforward to the most conjectural is basically how we do it. So option one is you have heightened perceptions and an expanded umwelt, right? So you're literally, your, your five senses are simply picking up more of 
reality that's normally streaming by us, and we've whittled our aperture down to next to nothing, and you've broadened it a little bit. That's the reducing valve of consciousness, Henry, Henri Bergson, Aldous Huxley, right? So that's level one. That one seems very straightforward. You know, increased norepinephrine, increased you know, brain synchrony, hemispheric synchrony, decreased default mode network, blah, blah, blah. Level two would be that in non-ordinary states, we have some heightened, basically, pattern recognition or data access of epigenetic material. That there is, there is the ability, you know, and it's, it feels like a squishy field, so I'd love your thoughts on it, but, you know, whether that's POWs in the Confederacy or Holocaust survivors or that famous, you know, you know Scandinavian village studies and all those kind of things. And there's been mixed and contested results, but whether it's methylation, mm -hmm. RNA, um, you know, various other mechanisms by which there's a sense that, that both the biological and psychological experiences of our, of our ancestors does feel to get passed on in something other than words, memory, and culture. And is it possible mm -hmm. that in the non-ordinary states, do we find some clearer access to them? Um, and, then, and, and, and then there was also the, I'm sure you've seen the fear extinction studies with, with the mice, you know, and the, and the cherry blossom scent, mm -hmm. so back to, back to smell, right? So the mm -hmm. idea of that cascading through, I think, four to six generations. So you're like, oh, wow. And, and, you, and then the, the analog is obviously ancestor worship, you know, whether that's Japanese or Native mm -hmm. American or hundred other traditions mm -hmm. that say, we look back to who came before us, they have some ongoing presence beyond their physical form, and we access their wisdom or knowledge. So you're like, oh, there's even a, a cultural analog, mm -hmm. you know. Um, mm -hmm. The third would be um, some, some un, you know, heretofore unknown mode of accessing information encoded on DNA. You know, and, and even just at the material level where you've got George Church, you know, at Harvard, you know, literally storing, storing songs and <clears throat> movies on DNA, expansion of DNA. You're like, oh, okay, interesting. We are, as Carl Sagan said, we are made of star stuff. The building blocks in our bodies are the same as they were, you know, landed here on this patch of dirt from the Big Bang. We, and we know that DNA can be encoded and decoded. So purely hypothetically, because now we're fully off where the sidewalk ends, um, is it mm -hmm. somehow possible that we might have access to be able to read and write? I mean, when I, I don't even know about the write, but for sure read DNA as it's being done in labs all day. And then the mm -hmm. final one would just be, you know, John Wheeler's It's From Bits, that the, the universe itself is information mm -hmm. and that we have some capacity to, again, you know, you, um, in fact, I think even David Eagleman, and I haven't been able to follow up with David to specifically ask him this, but he has floated, in fact, in, in incognito, um, he floated mm -hmm. the notion of brain as receiver, brain as radio receiver, which is, you know, that's been a metaphor mm -hmm. forever. But that idea of like, in mm -hmm. a heightened state, are we perhaps picking up non-local, non-corporeal information from the mm -hmm. substrate mm -hmm. of the universe. So like out of that four, mm -hmm. shoot holes in them. Tell me w which ones seem you know, most concurrent with your own thinking. What do you think? Where does the, where does mm -hmm. the information that feels mm -hmm. so meaningful, so profound, often plays such a key role in, in healing, in creativity, and in integration, where do you mm -hmm. think it's coming from? Mm -hmm. 
That's a, it was really uh, awesome to hear you describe all those things. I've heard them in pieces, but never sort of listed like that in sort of a hierarchy as well. So that, I appreciate that. Um, so this is where um, my conservative neuroscientist part of my personality comes in, uh, which I have. I mean, sometimes my other colleagues might feel like I'm, you know, totally in outer space with the building, you know, immersive vessels and integrating it with psychedelics. But at the very core of like our empirical contribution to the scientific literature, there are experiments that look really like their experiments. Um, and they're, you know, very basic sort of stepwise, you know, somewhat iterative, unfortunately, ways of advancing our knowledge. And so level one is the only one that I feel really comfortable with right now mm -hmm. from what you described. I could tell you, <laughs> I could tell you that it is not for lack of finding those others fascinating and um, interesting and exciting as potentials. I'm, I'm very open-minded, especially about things that haven't been disproven or that you know I don't know a lot about, and that some of those things are literally pretty far out of my expertise. So I wouldn't feel comfortable making strong statements about them. I do think that from what I read in terms of mechanisms of action from the type of literature that I've been consuming to understand where I can play a role in psychedelic research at, at Neuroscape. Um, to me, it seems that you can explain a lot of the benefits that we talked about, and not just for people that are suffering, but even the enhancement and growth of people that are healthy, that are looking to um, you know, expand. I think that uh, with a shift in perception and maybe an expansion of it, coupled with a change, not just perceptual change, but a change in your own conceptualization of who you are, your identity, and sense of time. Um, with these elements changing and distorting as profoundly as they do, I believe that there's the building blocks there to explain an incredible amount of the phenomena that we see with, you know, prolonged ingestion and treatments. I believe. Um, I don't think that we've explained it enough, which is what I want to do as a scientist is help understand how those things could come together to lead to change so that we can do better. That's the translational neuroscience part. Like, mm -hmm. I don't just want to geek out about it, although that's pretty fun. I want to say, oh, now we know how to do it better and help people that have previously been un unable to have relief from suffering or people that have been unable to grow. But um, so for me, I just find that those other um, levels are sort of pretty empirically inaccessible, at least by the methodology that I know. And so I like the thought experiment. Well, well yeah, them, yes, and yes, and though, right? Them. So, so, so yeah. the, the, th the thing yeah, is, is totally. that. Um, for me at least, like those were the first three in particular, they're all bodily based. Now, whether there's a provable or that there's a plausible mechanism of action, whether there's a demonstrable one, TBD, the, the, and the information theory notion, you're like, I mean, again, weirdly, you know, neuroscientists are coming back around to it, which is almost like the ether or the noosphere or the platonic realm of forms. You're like, holy shit, we are really potentially coming full circle. If you go to the psychological or the metaphysical interpretations, those feel even squishier to me. And I've never felt, you know, and, and it's one thing if you're trying to build from first principles, right? But you know, mm -hmm. in particular, right? If you're putting people under the influence of psychedelics in the sense sync device, 
they are likely mm -hmm. going to come out with some hair on fire, holy shit moments, right? That are not in the script, that are not in the code. They're going to have some epiphanic experiences and they will often, you know, the, the typical thing, and Oliver Sacks did a beautiful job translating a lot of this, they often feel as real or more real than waking life. And the question of, is that, you know, the Freudians will say, oh, that's just simply the repressed workings of your unconscious and you're actually, you know, you didn't think up anything new and you've just been playing tiddlywinks, you know, you've been hiding your own Easter eggs, you know, there's, there's no magic here. Um, and that always feels mm -hmm. profoundly unsatisfying, not in the sense of just demystifying what might have been a profoundly held, you know, mystical experience, mm -hmm. but it just feels inadequate to, to mm -hmm. explain the combinations of profound insights, integrations, often wicked humor, you know, you name it, of, of, that, of that information feed. Now in the past, you know, mm -hmm. pre-Freud, you've got the Greeks saying, when somebody has an experience like that, it's not you, it's the muses, you know, or, you know, in other mm -hmm. traditions, there would always be some deus ex machina to explain it. We crumpled that, crushed that, and called it our subconscious. So, so the, the track that we went down, um, if we were just spitballing, I wouldn't give them much credence either. But we are actually, I feel at this point, we are obligated to be reverse engineering what we already know is epiphany. We're not wondering if epiphany is possible. We're now creating experiences that delivering it, you know, pretty consistently. And now we are, we, we feel that, that to me, it feels like there's, there's both a, um, an, an academic obligation, because there's a there, there, but there's also an ethical obligation, which is that if we're putting people in these states to have these experiences, and we're somehow realizing or understanding that they have something to do with the healing, something to do with creative positive outputs, it feels, you know, we feel obliged to know where we're sending folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I love what you said. And, you know, I mean, I think that that connects with me you know, I've become like incredibly practical in my science and my thinking over the years. I don't know how that happened, uh, but it has. <laughs> I think just because I'm like, I'm not going to live forever. I want to really help people in this time I have. If I'm not really practical, I'm not going to succeed. And so I, I am always like, what is reducible to an experiment? You know, this is the tools that I know that I would train to how to increase our understanding and our ability to create um, uh, therapeutic approaches. So when I hear the things you say, I'm like, okay, it's a, it's a hypothesis of mine, let's just say, that with um, just the raw mental machinery, without even going to RNA, DNA, mm -hmm. other external information, I'm hypothesizing that you can change your environment and your brain in such a way that they come together to go back to our early conversation. That's where I believe the mind and consciousness emerge from. You could change both sides of those. That's what we're talking about here. Both sides of them change. You're changing the chemistry in the brain with these mm -hmm. compounds. You're changing the environment. And you can have um, an, a completely new set of conscious experiences that can 
under the right circumstances lead to epiphanies and breakthroughs and, and all these benefits. I'm going to hypothesize that that is possible and that we just don't understand how that occurs. And the main reason why I am, because I actually think it's empirically accessible. It's accessible through experimentation. And that's what I want to do, right? I want to do these experiments that no one has done yet. So I would say, so I try to think about that like, okay, what is the study that we can either succeed or fail and say, wow, it, this is just not possible. There has to be some other source of information that we're either not gather, gathering or we're not aware of that's leading to this. They may, that might be our conclusion, but that's <laughs> how I would approach it. You know, so what I want to do is do full, you know, what I call the full metal jacket, full multimodal biosensing with uh -huh. everything we have during a a, a psychedelic treatment so that we can as clearly as possible start delineating the physiology, the neural, the behavioral, the performance signatures that are associated with the state that someone is in in the moment. And we've done an mm -hmm. incredibly poor job, we, the world, the, the human enterprise, of understanding the state of an individual in a moment in any really granular way. But I believe the technology and the machine learning tools and the neuroscience um, insights are there to allow us to do that now. And then once we understand someone in the moment, then we can start even manipulating their environment through scent and tactile information, maybe by neural, all these type binaural beats or visual, auditory, all the ways that we could put them in a new world with a brain that's been influenced as profoundly as it would with a psychedelic treatment and start seeing if we can dissect out what are the elements that allow these peak experiences, these transformative events, these epiphanies that lead to these remarkable therapeutic changes to occur? That is what mm -hmm. I believe is experimentally accessible that has not been done. That's mm -hmm. as well. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so we've been kind of tra I've been tracking in, in my research for, for my next book, like what is that roadmap? Like what, what is that, what are those GPS coordinates? And let me run these past you and then see what you think, see how that tracks with what you're saying, and then also sure. how close or far are we from being able to engineer that experience. So it for sure feels like a saturated and activated endocannabinoid system as one of the core systemic markers, the same high vagal nerve tone, um, probably a baseline of alpha-theta neuroelectrical activity with jaunts into gamma and deep drops into delta. Um, high nitric oxide in the bloodstream and across the blood-brain barrier. Um, let's think what else is going on. Um, and then throw in multi-sensory multimedia. So light, sound, music, and, and potentially, again, um, lyrics, if you choose to go in that space, or purely atmospherics. Um, and then some form of energy pulsing. AC, DC, mag stim, um, or sexual arousal. Um, and pretty much, to me, I, like <laughs> you're hard pressed not to have your mind blown and your heart opened in that neck of the woods. How does that track for you? And, and, and then throw in, I mean, if we wanted to get fancier, we could throw in something to do with the serotonergic system and something to do with um, and this is a whole other rabbit hole, but I've just been getting updated on the research that of, of dimethyltryptamine 
in the pineal gland actually finally being validated and, and showing up somewhere. So you have to go so cautiously into that space because there's been so much hype and misinformation for so long. Mm -hmm. But let's just say tryptamines in the serotonin system. Like that feels like the crossroads of yeah. a bunch of things. Yeah, I, would, I mean, you know, my, my initial reaction is that there is, um, there's a, a lot about what I'm hearing that sounds really intriguing and a lot that we don't know yet, especially on how they come together. Mm -hmm. So to me, it sounds like a great experiment, you know, that I'm an yeah. empiricist. I'm like, there could be an experiments constructed like that. I think you're unlikely to be able to load them all the first time in that very first experiment, which is even some of the challenges we're facing with less, you know, known things like just even multi-sensory stimulation coupled with multimodal biosensing has really not even been done yet very much mm. at all. So, you know, there's, we're still like really pretty naive in being able to create experiences way less complicated than the ones you just described, but I find mm -hmm. it super fascinating. And yeah, I would say, you know, it falls into the greater, bigger goals that I have over the next 20 years are to start understanding those pieces, many that you described, some others that you haven't, and how they might be, like I said, the, the ingredients in this recipe that we don't quite understand yet. Mm -hmm. um, but if we're gonna use, if we're going to use technology and that technology could be molecules or digital devices to really advance us as humans, whether we're suffering or not, this is the work that has to be done not just in terms of the explorers in the world, the psychonauts and the, you know, the brave frontiersmen, but in terms of academics like myself <laughs> that are willing to, to, you know, push on their systems. Like I push on my university um, all the time to say, these are, these are real, um, real addressable questions. And the fact that we've been doing so poorly at helping so many people around the world for so long creates an imperative for us to explore more, you know, robustly, rigorously, and with safety always in the front. But we could be doing a ton better. So I like all that. Beautiful. Well, I, I got to share a night at the museum with you. You were giving an awesome talk at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and and afterwards. You mentioned uh, something that I found fascinating, just that you've, you've always kind of seen time and treated time and the unfolding of things very differently than maybe most folks. You haven't been sort of going from one goal to the next goal. You've been seeing in sort of 10-year chunks mm -hmm. and just kind of always being able to kind of reel in the future from mm -hmm. where you stand. So mm -hmm. from, from where we stand today, um, where do you see the next decade? If, if you get to continue pursuing and fulfilling you know, all of your goals and, and the research uh, of the Neuroscape Lab and, and all of your projects, what, is, what does it look like? What is life in the world and, 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 and your contribution to it look like in 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And it is, it is sort of my process um, of how I go about um, creation, whether it's on the entrepreneurial side or on the academic side. As you described, I try to project myself 10 years in the future, think about the world that I want to live in 
and then essentially reverse engineer to today and say, how the hell do I get there? That's that's my process. And, you know, it works, over, so, you know, to, to some degree so far because we recently got FDA clearance on a video game, the first video game ever approved as a medical device ever, um, yeah. which was an idea that I had 10 years ago. And so, you know, now that I sort of validated my my science fiction oriented process of, of creation and research um it's 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 more comfortable for me to do it again and i spent a lot of time now trying to live in the future that 10-year future as much as i can um and then uh think about how we could get there i I would say, you know, without the exhaustive details of what that is, which is, is what most of my thinking is, uh, the idea of integration, um, which I feel like our species does particularly poorly at, like even to go back to your, your earlier description that we tend to think of the brain as like, this cell does this, this area does that. That's a lack of imagination of integration. It's the brain doesn't really work like that. The brain is an integrated dynamic network. Our brain struggles with multivariate processes like that. Um, and we also struggle with it in the tech world, in all sorts of places, in the pharma world. Look at the pharma world. We've built silos around every single drug we've ever created, almost, almost never really studying how they could work synergistically. And then the intersection of what we're talking about that seems so obvious in this conversation of how could you not look at how a drug and an experience might come together? There's hardly any examples of that in the scientific literature. I mean, uh, as a clinician, I saw patients with Alzheimer's disease when, when I saw patients um, in, at UCSF. And, you know, how we treat them is with a cholinesterase inhibitor, which increases the, you know, acetylcholine and the synapses and has effects that are broad. Like we said, these are blunt instruments. They're attentional and memory effects and some negative side effects, of course. And that's what we do when someone has Alzheimer's, like almost all the time. That's like our main treatment right now is that approach. But to me now, in retrospect, not when I was actually prescribing it as a doctor, now in retrospect, it seems insane to me that we give a compound that changes a neurotransmitter you know, system in the way that does and do not couple that with some type of experience, some type of behavior or stimulation. We don't do that for Alzheimer's disease right now. We just don't. To me, it seems like a bodybuilder taking steroids, but then just sitting on the couch all day. It's like, well, you know, mm -hmm. you put the fuel in there, but you didn't direct the rest of the system for growth. So integration across all the things we're talking about is like the world that I want to live in in 10 years, right? Where this really interesting journey that we've been on that is advancing now of using um, molecules like psychedelics, I think in particular, but not only psychedelics. We know very little, as I said, about like, cholinesterase inhibitors about how any molecule interacts with experience, how those tools, tools of that you just described, that long list, really fascinating, not, you know, not an area where a lot of people are doing research, but quite open for that. The sensory synchronized immersive experiences that we're creating, the role of stimulation through electrical systems, all of those things for us not to be so timid to bring mm -hmm. things together and yeah. really understand how we can use our tools to elevate us always returning to the science meets humanity right it sometimes it's just so much fun to geek out and build stuff and do experiments and they're sort of satisfying in their own regard but to get distracted that the ultimate mission is to really to me 
ultimate mission for me, because everyone could have different missions, is really to just better our lives and what it means to be human. It takes a constant, as I said, reorientation. Are we building these silos because like our patent system and our research system and our granting system and our regulatory system and our reimbursement system are all set up to really support everything in silos, which I believe is true. Mm -hmm. Rather, that's a lot of systems that have to change to start thinking about how your technology that you have patent on and yours that you're getting reimbursed at this level, mm -hmm. how they come together. And until we start really changing those systems fundamentally, I don't think we'll be successful at dealing with some of the most immense problems we face as, as humans. And that goes beyond the pathologies that we face. It goes to you know what I describe as this cognition crisis, that we're just not evolving our minds. And because we're not, we're not capable of bringing the attentional focus and the decision-making and the empathy and compassion that are necessary to deal with things like climate change and COVID. We just don't have the abilities to do that. And I think that the 10-year vision that I see is that the tools that we create don't just entertain us and allow us to communicate, but allow us to really elevate ourselves and to deal with those, those challenges. Beautiful, man. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, you you inspired me talking to you. So uh, that's why. Uh, Tear you know, down this like wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Yeah. No, I feel so, like I'm, you know, I'm waxing more poetic and being more sort of aggressive in my, my vision now, expressing it. Not that what goes on in my head than I normally am, because I treasure you as a person. We've, you know, created our own brotherhood and, and really have a lot of conversations. And I know the audience of people that you assemble have sort of done their homework and are willing to, to stretch into some of these topics. But uh, I don't often talk about these, and even in all the podcasts I do and, and really? talks I do on stage, but not, not very frequently. You know, there's, there's a lot of like just real detailed stuff, you know, on how do you get FDA approval? How do you build a company that integrates across medicine and digital technologies that could easily consume an hour of our time? Um, oh, yeah. And uh, so it's it's fun for me to, to, you know, really reach into the vision of what's possible and what do we want for our species? Because that's the place I like to spend, you know, a good amount of time in. Um, so thank you for uh, helping to stimulate that. Awesome. Alrighty, buddy. Well, thank you so much. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.